good morning. Will you pray with me? Lord, thank you that your word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. As we enter into the book of Samuel this morning, our prayer is that we would know you more and that you would shape and fashion us in the likeness of Christ. Amen. When we've turned away from the Lord and his will for our lives, how does he restore us to fellowship with him? We've been looking at the life of David from the time that he appears in the story of Israel through his long period of preparation to lead the nation to the point where he becomes king. In particular, we've been exploring the ways in which God works in David's life and recognizing the common lessons there are in the Lord's dealings with all people who seek to follow him. The great theme of these chapters has been the sovereignty of God. The Lord is God, and David and Saul and you and I are not. And the story of David's preparation for the throne is nearing its end. Chapters 27 to 31 of 1 Samuel are really one single account contrasting the failures of David and Saul and David's restoration and Saul's death. It's difficult to do justice to this story when you break it up into short sections, sections short enough to preach on. So this week I want to do something a little different and read two chapters which deal with the Lord's restoration of David. And as we do that, we'll pause four times to reflect on what the Lord might be saying to us. David, you'll remember, has been living in Philistine territory in service to Achish, king of Gath. Achish is one of the five rulers of the Philistine city-states in Canaan. So for 16 months, David has been allied to the enemy of Israel and has been pretending to raid Israelite settlements and bring the plunder back to Achish. In fact, he's been attacking the Amalekites and other enemies of Israel, but in order not to be found out, he's been massacring the people he raids so that no one is left alive to betray him to Achish. He's been lying to Achish each time the king asks him where the plunder comes from. There's been no record of him seeking guidance from the Lord for perhaps two years. And he has not spoken of God that we know of since he last saw Saul before going into exile. The last we heard of him before the writer breaks off to tell us about Saul's visit to the medium in Endor, David has been told by Achish that he and his men must serve in the Philistine army and fight against the Israelites in what will be one of the most significant battles for Israel in this century, the Battle of Mount Gilboa, a battle in which King Saul will die and David's way to the throne will be opened. But David is clearly not walking with the Lord, and he is not ready for that throne. What will the Lord do? Julia Sabo is going to read 1 Samuel chapter 29 for us. The Philistines gathered all their forces at Aphek, an Israel camp by the spring in Jezreel. As the Philistine rulers marched with their units, 
of hundreds and thousands. David and his men were marching at the rear with Achish. The commanders of Philistine asked, What about these Hebrews? Achish replied, Is this not David, who is an officer of Saul, king of Israel? He's already been with me for over a year, and from the day he left Saul until now, I have found no fault in him. But the Philistine commanders were angry with Achish and said, Send the man back, that he may return to the place you assigned him. He must not go with us into battle, or he will turn against us during the fighting. How better could he regain his master's favor than taking the heads of our own men? Isn't this the David they sang about in their dances? Saul has slain slain his thousands, and David his tens of thousands? So Achish called David and said to him, As surely as the Lord lives, you have been reliable, and I would be pleased to have you serve with me in the army. But from the day you came... To me until today, I have found no fault in you, but the rulers don't approve of you. Now turn back and go in peace. Do nothing to displease the Philistine rulers. But what have I done? asked David. What have you found against your servant from the day I came to you until now? Why can't I go fight against the enemies of my lord the king? Akish answered, I know that you have been pleasing in my eyes as the angel of God. Nevertheless, the Philistine commanders have said, He must not go with us into battle. Now get up early along with your master's servants who have come with you, and leave in the morning as soon as it's light. So David and his men got up early in the morning to go back to the land of the Philistines. And the Philistines went up to Jezreel. Before we ask how the Lord goes about restoring David, it's worth stopping to ask why the Lord allowed David to go and join his enemies, the Philistines, in the first place. Why does the Lord permit us to walk away from his purposes? Let me suggest three reasons. First, God does not override our free will. If we are truly to choose of our own free will to follow him, we must also be free to choose to turn away from his will. And that freedom of choice doesn't disappear when we become Christians. David has free will that the Lord will not override. Second, David was truly exhausted. He'd been running from Saul for several years. He'd been leading a group of 600 men, plus their wives and children, through the desert. He'd been carrying the burden of his calling to the throne, which seemed further and further away instead of closer. His life had been in almost constant danger. David was truly exhausted. And the Lord knows, just as you and I know, that to argue with someone who is exhausted and sees the possibility of rest 
is likely to drive them further and faster away. The Lord in his grace is not swift to judge us for our weaknesses. He is slow to anger and quick to bless. If you think the Lord is disappointed with you this morning, you may be right. But one thing I'm sure of, he has not condemned you. God is gracious and understanding. And third, the Lord has in mind throughout David's preservation from the battle which is going to unfold at Mount Gilboa. This is a clear example of the Lord bringing good even out of disobedience. And Paul says in Romans 8 verse 28, we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who've been called according to his purpose. Even our disobedience can be reshaped for good by the Lord. That doesn't, of course, mean that our disobedience doesn't matter. It harms others, it harms ourselves, and it dishonors God. And yet the Lord can still achieve his purposes through it. In the situation in 1 Samuel chapter 29, with the impending defeat of Israel at Mount Gilboa, it's difficult to imagine how the next king of Israel can be prospered while judgment is brought on the current king and those who follow him. And yet that is exactly what the Lord brings out of David's period of rebellion. Imagine the alternative. What if David had not gone to the Philistines at Gath? Surely he would have had to fight alongside Saul at Mount Gilboa. And with David, the Israelites would have won. And Saul and his army would not have been punished for their disobedience. Saul would have remained on the throne and his stalemate with David would have continued. But since David did go to Gath, this possibility and countless others were eliminated. David is saved from participation in this great battle on the wrong side. But he doesn't get to fight on the right side. And perhaps to win the throne earlier and in a more glorious way. It's remarkable, isn't it, how the Lord works together, even David's disobedience, for good. The Lord uses David's wayward actions for his good purposes. And this points to the first step in the Lord's restoration of those like David who've departed from his purposes for them. God acts first. His grace goes before us. Before we even begin to think of turning back to him, he is at work on our behalf, drawing us to himself. And that's what David's release from the Philistine army is all about. There's no mention of God in this chapter other than on the lips of Achish. Nothing to state explicitly what the Lord did. But that's, of course, because the book of Samuel is so rooted in a, a God-centered worldview that God's involvement in every element is assumed. Whether it's specifically stated or not, this chapter describes the Lord's deliverance of David. And when the Lord, uh, Lord's deliverance comes, it involves not joining with the Philistines, as David had done when he was trying to deliver himself, but leaving their influence and employment. We also need this God-steeped, this God-drenched view of our lives, which recognizes the Lord's activity without the need for fanfare and proclamation. 
Jesus meant what he said when he said, truly, I am with you always. He's always at work in the circumstances of our lives, always for our blessing, always drawing us to himself. As Del Ralph Davis puts it, what a relief that God's presence doesn't come blasting at you like a television commercial. He doesn't necessarily declare it, but allows you to discover it. And God's deliverance of David is marvelous. He uses the Philistine commanders to release David from Philistine service. Ironically, by keeping David out of the Philistine battle lines, they ensure that he does not have to fight against Israel, which would certainly have disqualified him from the throne. Davis says even his appearing among the Philistine troops would have destroyed David's credibility with many Israelites. If only they'd let him fight. They might never have had to face him as king of Israel. But they do not think they can trust him. So they force Achish to eject him from the army. Verse 6. So Achish called David and said to him, As surely as the Lord lives, you have been reliable. And I would be pleased to have you serve with me in the army. From the day you came to me until today... I found no fault in you, but the rulers don't approve of you. Now turn back and go in peace. Do nothing to displease the Philistine rulers. But what have I done, asked David? What have you found against your servant from the day I came to you until now? Why can't I go and fight against the enemies of my lord, the king? Perhaps David breathes a secret sigh of relief, even as he pretends to protest to Achish. Or perhaps the Philistine rulers are correct, and David did plan to switch sides in the battle and inflict heavy casualties from within the Philistine lines. Perhaps when he says, why can't I go and fight against the enemies of my lord the king, he's talking of Saul as his king and not Achish. And he's actually disappointed that he'll not be able to spring his surprise. Or perhaps by this point, David is genuinely desperate to remain under Philistine protection, which has brought apparent safety these past 16 months, whatever the cost to his standing in Israel. Perhaps he's lost all faith that one day he'll be king. We never find out. And the Bible never tells us. All it does reveal is that the Lord acts first, to save David. His grace goes before him, unmerited, unbidden. Now let me just say, because God is at work for our good, even before we turn back to him, does not mean that we can just sit back and wait and everything will turn out right. As Davis says, this text carries no guarantee for me it does not promise me that if I get my life so tangled by my own cleverness and foolishness, off track by my own short-sighted decision, that God will infallibly rescue me from my mess. What he's done for David, he may not do for me. What this text does say is that no situation is too hopeless for the Lord not to be able to untangle. He can use our willfulness, our foolishness, even our enemies, 
to bring his purposes to pass in our lives. And he doesn't give up on us because we get ourselves in a mess. So often we think, once I've got out of this mess, I'll, I'll get back with God. That's not what parents want to hear their children say to them. No, when they're in the midst of the mess is exactly when you most want your child to, to turn to you for help, even if sometimes the best help is simply to assure them of your love and let them find their own way out. Don't delay in turning back to the Lord. There is no guarantee that all of your circumstances will work out fine, but you can be sure that the Lord is already at work for your good. It's symbolic that the day of the great battle of Mount Gilboa begins for Saul with him heading off to the battle in the darkness of night. And that same day begins for David with him leaving the battle as the first light of dawn breaks. But after three days' journey back to his home at Ziklag, David will discover that the mess he's got himself into is much worse than he'd realized. Chapter 30, verse 1. David and his men reached Ziklag on the third day. Now the Amalekites had raided the Negev and Ziklag. They'd attacked Ziklag and burnt it, and had taken captive the women and everyone else in it, both young and old. They killed none of them, but carried them off as they went on their way. When David and his men reached Ziklag, they found it destroyed by fire, and their wives and sons and daughters taken captive. So David and his men wept aloud until they had no strength left to weep. David's two wives had been captured, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. David was greatly distressed because the men were talking of stoning him. Each one was bitter in spirit because of his sons and daughters. When we've turned away from God's will, how does the Lord restore us? One, he acts first. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Two, he brings us face to face with the reality of the situation we've put ourselves in. When David and his men reach Ziklag, they find the town burnt to the ground and everyone and everything missing. They have no idea who's done this. The writer of the book of Samuel lets us in on the fact that it was the Amalekites, but David and his men are in despair because they do not know who's done this. A holy war, that is, a war over religion, has been going on between the Amalekites and Israel. Holy war has certain rules. Deuteronomy chapter 20 sets these out. When a city falls, women, children, livestock, and other property may be taken as the spoils of war, but they're not to be harmed. David, you'll remember, has been attacking Amalekite settlements for the past 16 months and leaving no one alive. Here, the Amalekites conquer Ziklag, perhaps in retaliation, and yet they abide by the rules of war. Even the Amalekites, enemies of Israel, enemies of God, conduct themselves with greater honor than David has. Of course, there would have been no Amalekite army to attack Ziklag or anywhere else had King Saul done the job that the Lord commanded him, 
and defeated them completely when he had the chance. At the very moment, the spirit of Samuel appears to Saul and rebukes him for his failure to completely destroy the Amalekites. The Amalekite army is destroying David's present home. And so much for Saul's protection of Israel. But so much too for the Philistine protection that David had sacrificed so much to be under. Achish's protection turns out to be nothing at all. David's men are quick to pounce on the failure of his leadership. And their grief rapidly gives way to anger and a plan to stone David. All their trust in him had gone. But losing all human support, first Saul, then Achish, then even his own men, well, that can sometimes be the best thing because it drives us to a deeper dependence on God. R.T. Kendall says, sometimes God has to take extreme measures to make us listen to him. But here's the point. God is honest. The Bible is truthful. What do I mean? Davis says this about David's disastrous situation. Here is the realism of the Bible. As the Lord's servant, you may be overwhelmed with troubles. You may receive more than you think you can handle. But, well, there's no but except to say God in his word tells you this. The Bible is truthful. It does not promise that God will rescue us in every circumstance and always give us health and wealth and happiness despite what the false teachers on religious television shows tell us. Jesus said, in this world, you will have trouble. Paul said, we are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed, perplexed, but not in despair, persecuted, but not abandoned, struck down, but not destroyed. When the moment is right as part of the process of drawing you back into relationship with him, the Lord will let you come face to face with the reality of your situation. But the Lord does not leave us there in despair. Let's read on. Chapter 30, verse 6. David was greatly distressed because the men were talking of stoning him. Each one was bitter in spirit because of his sons and daughters. But David found strength in the Lord his God. Then David said to Abiathar the priest, the son of Ahimelech, Bring me the ephod. Abiathar brought it to him. And David inquired of the Lord, Shall I pursue this raiding party? Will I overtake them? Pursue them, he answered. You will certainly overtake them and succeed in the rescue. David and the 600 men with him came to the Besor Valley, where some stayed behind. 200 of them were too exhausted to cross the valley, but David and the other 400 continued the pursuit. They found an Egyptian in a field and brought him to David. They gave him water to drink and food to eat, part of a cake of pressed figs and two cakes of raisins. He ate and was revived for he had not eaten any food or drunk any water for three days and three nights. David asked him, 
Who do you belong to? Where do you come from? He said, I'm an Egyptian, the slave of an Amalekite. My master abandoned me when I became ill three days ago. We raided the Negev of the Kerethites, some territory belonging to Judah, and the Negev of Caleb, and we burned Ziklag. David asked him, Can you lead me down to this raiding party? He answered, Swear to me before God that you will not kill me or hand me over to my master, and I will take you down to them. He led David down, and there they were, scattered over the countryside, eating, drinking, and reveling because of the great amount of plunder they'd taken from the land of the Philistines and from Judah. David fought them from dusk until the evening of the next day, and none of them got away, except 400 young men who rode off on camels and fled. David recovered everything the Amalekites had taken, including his two wives. Nothing was missing, young or old, boy or girl, plunder or anything else they had taken. David brought everything back. The third element in the Lord's restoration of David is found in verse 6. David found strength in the Lord his God. The unmerited grace David received in being freed from the battle created the conditions for him to return to the Lord. The crisis David faced in being confronted by the loss of his home and family and the threat of his men provided the catalyst for him to return to the Lord. When David could no longer say, my home, my town, my possessions, or even my family, he found that he could still say, my God. Eugene Peterson says, the moment of disaster freed him immediately and amazingly from the 16 months of servitude under Achish. And David was dealing with God again. When Saul had been in his moment of deepest crisis, he had looked for, for a word from God. When David is, he looks for God. Not a message, a self-centered personal rescue plan, but God himself. David looks for a relationship, not an escape plan. But what is finding strength in the Lord, or more literally, being strengthened in the Lord? It's easy for us to get this wrong. Countless times I've heard those same false teachers on the television take a verse like this, often out of context, and talk about what amounts to a magical invocation of God's name to give us what we want. Or, as they tend to put it, to claim what is our right as children of God. Let me be absolutely clear. Demanding God's intervention is not what strengthening yourself in the Lord entails. The Bible calls that taking the name of the Lord in vain, and it's forbidden by the third commandment. God is not there at your beck and call to do your will. So how do we find strength in the Lord? Classically, I think there are four steps in that process of renewing your relationship with God. First, we reflect on our past experiences of walking closely with the Lord. And by reflecting on the past, we're reminding ourselves that God has been with me, which brings back our sense of self-worth. God has been with me. Second, we reflect on the Lord's promises for our future, sometimes specific words to us, 
sometimes his promises in Scripture to all who follow him. And by reflecting on the Lord's promises, we're reminding ourselves that God will be with me, which brings back our sense of hope. God will be with me. And third, we reflect on who God is, his character, our knowledge of what he's like. By reflecting on the Lord's character, we're reminding ourselves that God is good, which brings back our, our sense of a desire for relationship with him. God is good. And fourth, we rededicate ourselves to our relationship with the Lord, recognizing that I am his and he is mine, which brings us back into that state of trusting in him. I am his and he is mine. So being strengthened in the Lord entails these four things, reflecting on our past experiences of walking closely with the Lord, reflecting on the Lord's promises for our future, reflecting on who God is, and rededication to our relationship with him. And David immediately demonstrates that his rededication to God is sincere by asking for guidance through Abiathar the priest. R.T. Kendall says, David showed considerable courage in turning to the priest because it allowed his followers to see his vulnerability. See, if the priest had said, God says, do not pursue the Amalekites, they would never recover what they'd lost and would have been even more convinced that David was not a man of God. On the other hand, if God's answer was, yes, pursue your enemies, and they were unable to find them, they would blame David for that. But David publicly demonstrated his faith and asked Abiathar to find out what God wanted them to do. David's men were unnerved by the near miss with serving in the Philistine army and having to fight their own people. They were tired from three days' march. They were crushed by the destruction of Ziklag and the loss of their families and possessions. And they were no longer trusting David. But David, renewed in his faith, is able to inspire them to follow him. And they travel 15 miles on nothing but his faith until they come to the brook Bessor, and 200 of his men are too exhausted to go on. Even then, the rest continue, not knowing who they're pursuing or where they're going, until they come across the Egyptian, who's able to reveal that it's the Amalekites that they're following and is able to bring them to their camp. They fight through the night and the next day, a man's family, not to mention all of his possessions, are a great motivator. And they take back all that was lost. We find strength in the Lord our God. Let's read on. Verse 18. David recovered everything the Amalekites had taken, including his two wives. Nothing was missing, young or old, boy or girl, plunder or anything else they had taken. David brought everything back. He took all the flocks and herds, and his men drove them ahead of the other livestock, saying, This is David's plunder. Then David came to the 200 men who'd been too exhausted to follow him and who were left behind at the Bessel Valley. They came out to meet David and the men with them. As David and his men approached, he asked them how they were. But all the evil men and troublemakers amongst David's followers said, 
Because they did not go with us, we will not share with them the plunder we recovered. However, each man may take his wife and children and go. David replied, No, my brothers, you must not do that with what the Lord has given us. He has protected us and delivered into our hands the raiding party that came against us. Who will listen to what you say? The share of the man who stayed with the supplies is to be the same as that of him who went down to the battle. All will share alike. David made this a statute and ordinance for Israel from that day to this. When David reached Ziklag, he sent some of the plunder to the elders of Judah, who were his friends, saying, Here is a gift for you from the plunder of the Lord's enemies. When we've turned away from God and his will for our lives, how does the Lord restore us to fellowship with him? The Lord acts first. He lets us recognize the reality of the situation we've put ourselves in. We find strength in the Lord. And finally, we know that our restoration to fellowship with God is real when we extend the same grace we have received to others. It's interesting that those who fight with David call the property that they gain from the Amalekites over and above the property that was stolen from them, David's plunder. And yet in the next breath, they're unwilling to share the plunder we recovered, as David directs. His men say the plunder is David's, but David says it's the Lord's. For David, what they've gained is not what they had earned, but what they had been given. It shows the lack of true perspective that we have, that we can so easily see the troublemaker's point of view here. They're the ones who fought the battle. So why should they share with those who were too exhausted to fight and who sat by the brook with the baggage? But David insists on equal shares. No, my brothers, you must not do that with what the Lord has given us. He has protected us and delivered into our hands the raiding party that came against us. And the share of the man who stayed with the supplies is to be the same as that of him who went down to the battle. All will share alike. When God has been so good to us, why is it that we are unwilling to be good to others? We have to start to look at the good things in our lives as blessings from the Lord, not things that we've earned by right through our own hard work. And we have to start to be more like our God, who gives blessings generously to everyone when no one really deserves them. The great truth which David grasps is that you don't get treated as a second-class citizen by the heart of God if at times you are too tired to go on. It may not seem like it, but this is a great theological statement, a revelation about the character of God the Lord is a God of grace, undeserved favor. And to follow him is to become a person of grace, a person who blesses others when they've done nothing to earn your blessing. Jesus says, if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. What is this if it's not a description of God himself 
the one who is falsely accused and demanded of, the one who gives his coat as well as his shirt, the one who goes the extra mile. Is this fairness? No. This is grace. And David, in the course of finding strength in the Lord, has recognized God's unmerited favor towards him, towards one who has turned his back on the Lord's purposes and put himself in so much trouble. If God can be so gracious to him, how can he not extend the same grace he has received to others? The noted Old Testament theologian Walter Brueggemann says, this simple, dangerous act by David introduces into Israel a notion of justice in which economic goods were distributed on a new basis, which is why the writer of Samuel takes a moment to tell us David made this a statute and ordinance for Israel from that day to this. Grace is made part of the property, property law in Israel. David insists on equal shares for all. For now, the basis of distribution is not risk or victory or machismo, but simply membership in the community. David is not only a warrior. Now he begins to act the part of the king, to dispense justice. And there it is. There it is. God has taken the rebel David and taught him something fundamental about building a kingdom and being a king. With God, a new kingdom is always at hand, literally among the people of Israel through the raising up of David, but equally today. God's kingdom is at hand whenever his people live under his rule, whenever we live in a way that is different from the kingdoms of the world, a, a way that expresses his gracious character to others. How does the Lord restore us to fellowship with him? He acts first. His grace goes before us. He lets us see the reality of the situation we've put ourselves in. As we turn to him, we find strength in the Lord. And in response, we demonstrate the same grace we have received. That's how we know we've been restored. We begin to reflect his character again. Whenever our lives demonstrate the same grace to others that we've received ourselves, other people will be restored to a relationship with God. And the kingdom of God will be at hand. Amen. Will you pray with me? Lord, some of us are aware of people close to us who've turned away from you, whether gradually and imperceptibly, or like David in some more dramatic way. Lord, we ask you to act first. Show your grace to them by working to draw them back to yourself. Let them recognize the reality of their situation and their need of you. Lord, we're willing to speak up for you, but please give us the patience and the faith in you to wait for the right moment. And Lord, help us to recognize when that moment comes along, to recognize the prompting of your spirit. And we trust those we're thinking of to you now. 
that you love them and have their best interests at heart, better than our own best hopes for them. And Lord, some of us today are aware that it is we who've turned away from you and let our faith and our trust in you become cold. Lord, we acknowledge before you right now that we've been going our own way. We ask that you would strengthen us once again to walk closely with you, to trust the circumstances of our lives to you, to trust those we love into your hands. Forgive us for believing that we know better or care more deeply than you do about ourselves, about our circumstances and about those we love. Lord, we rededicate ourselves to you. We love you and we want to be like you. Let us see your character manifested in us again and let us see your kingdom come through us again, we pray. And we ask all of this in the name and for the glory of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. You've been listening to the First Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. For more sermons and information about our church's services and programs, please visit firstbc.org.